For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when an argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts today. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Kate Shaw. And Leah is away today. She is taking a little well-deserved downtime after a bear of a semester, so we will muddle through without her. But fear not, she will be back with us next week. But we have a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. The court is currently halfway through its December sitting, so we're going to focus on recapping the cases the court heard last week, and we'll say a few things about the cases the court is set to cover this week. And we'll then spend some time on additional developments in Gate. that's what we're calling it. And then we'll walk through some other news and culture grants, activity on the shadow docket, and some notable developments in the lower courts. But first, an erratum of sorts, a mea culpa, if you will. In our last episode, when we covered 303 Creative versus Alenis, which will be argued this week at the court, we mentioned Employment Division versus Smith, the embattled 1990 decision concerning free exercise of religion. In explaining the Smith decision, I misspoke and said that all of the Republican appointees on the court were in the majority in Smith. But while the majority in Smith included Scalia, Rehnquist, Stevens, O'Connor, and Kennedy— It did not include Justice Brennan, an Eisenhower appointee who dissented from the majority opinion, and Justice Blackmun, a Nixon appointee who concurred in part and dissented in part. So I was wrong. It was not all of the Republican appointees, but it was all of the courts members who I think we could classify as conservatives. I mean, I think I don't always think about Justice Brennan as a Republican appointee because he really kind of never stayed with it, which reminded me of something else. I'm So I did an event with Ellie Mistal recently. And one of the things that Ellie noted about the court and its current composition is that the Republican Party that has nominated these justices is just very different from the Republican Party that nominated justices 40, even 30 years ago. And Brennan and Blackman are kind of exemplary of that impulse. Like they're Republican appointees, but moderates in many ways. And in Brennan's case, a, a true liberal. Um, Justice Stevens. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just, I mean, yes, your justice is a perfect example of that. And so perhaps I could be forgiven for forgetting that they were actually appointed by Republicans. Well, and also the moment that we're in right now is one in which for the first time in history, we have perfect alignment between the ideology of the yes. justices and the parties of the appointing presidents. But that was not always the case. So you're right. Good reminder. One of our eagle-eared listeners wrote to me and I was like, yep, you're right. I went and looked at the transcript. I'm like, my bad. So here we are. My bad. I will be more precise in the future and just basically call everybody out by name and let you do the work. You can do the work. 
Our listeners are the best. They really are. They keep us honest. <laughs> and you know what? We keep the court honest. So let's keep going. On to the recaps. So let's start with two of the fraud slash political corruption cases that we previewed last week. Uh, Prococo versus- I thought you were going to say, let's start with two of the frauds. (laughs) (laughs) The frauds on the court. The fraud cases. cases. I know. It's hard to know with just that snippet. Fraud on the court and fraud cases. Before the court. Yeah. So these are fraud cases before the court, um, both of which the court heard argued on Tuesday. Um, And just to remind you what they're about. uh, So Prococo is about whether a former government official who had plans to return to government after a stint on a re-election campaign can be convicted of fraud for receiving a payment from a developer to pressure a state agency to award funding to that developer's project. You'd think the answer is clearly yes, but stay tuned. (laughs) The other case, Simonelli, is about whether it is a violation of the federal fraud statute to manipulate the terms of a government bid process in a way that favors a particular bidder. Here, to the tune of a $750 million contract for a high-tech facility as part of the Buffalo Billion Plan to redevelop upstate New York. Okay, so high-level overview of the two cases. I would say that from the arguments, it is clear that the court is sympathetic to the defendants and eager to further limit the reach of the federal fraud statutes. Um, But let's maybe take a beat on each of the two cases. All right, so first up in Prococo, the justices seemed very concerned about the possibility of a theory that prohibiting people with ties to government office, here a former official who's serving on the re-election campaign with plans to re-enter the government after the campaign is concluded, could extend to, quote-unquote, personal friends of people who hold government office. And specifically, that, quote-unquote, personal friends of people who hold government office could be targeted under fraud statutes for, say, receiving gifts, facilitating access to a government official. So let's hear from one of our favorite justices, Justice Alito, on this point. What do you say about somebody who is a super, super effective lobbyist? So let's say this person is a childhood friend of the person, uh, the elected public official. Uh, They played together on the high school football team. This person uh, was the elected official's best man or maid of honor at the wedding, Uh, spearheaded person's political career, campaign manager for every campaign, helped this elected public official out of numerous political scrapes that everybody thought meant the end of the person's political career. Now as a lobbyist, lobbies lots of different public officials, has lots of clients, has a 100 percent success rate with respect to this public official. There's a concern about having this, interpreting this statute to sweep in lobbying, but th- would that person be covered in your view? Um, what, my dude? <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I mean, it takes real cheek to ask this question at this moment. It does. And, you know, what you're maybe alluding to there, Melissa, is that, you know, as you said <laughs> what am I to? in our earlier episode about the New York Times story about you know, the influence slash access campaign directed to the court, which we will return to later in the show. The tenor of this question coming from Justice Alito right now just hits different in light of that bombshell reporting. (laughs) Big DGAF energy. (laughs) Big DGAF energy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you know what else had big DGAF energy? Um, (laughs) Maybe we could tease it now. Again, we'll come back to it later in the episode. But 
a letter issued from the court's legal counsel last week in response to Democratic congressional inquiries about the New York Times story. And briefly, the bombshell story we are referring to is the reporting by Jody Cantor and Joe Becker about this influence and access campaign directed at the Supreme Court. Um, so but again, we'll, we'll come back to this. But the letter from the court's legal counsel said, you know, pretty definitively, there is nothing to suggest that Justice Alito's actions violated ethics standards. It also said the term gift is defined to exclude social hospitality based on personal relationships. Uh, and it also noted that gifts do not count toward the dollar threshold if they take the form of food, lodging, or entertainment received as personal hospitality of an individual. So Justice Alito's <laughs> concern about casting aspersions on potentially untoward seeming relationships that might involve, you know, the peddling of some influence uh, falling clearly outside of any criminal or ethics statutes. It just felt like maybe Alito was speaking in two registers at the same time in this argument. But again, we'll come back to the Times reporting. Um, So let's stay with Procopo (laughs) for another minute. Um, So, okay, after Justice Alito's like, you know, high school football teammate slash best man hypo, Gorsuch piled on. Um, And here I thought that Nicole Reeves, who was representing the federal government, at one point actually got them to back off and let her answer a question. So maybe let's play Gorsuch pressing the same point as Alito, and then Reeves answering and actually getting Gorsuch to let her speak. This town is full of such persons. Um, And presidents have had kitchen cabinets since the beginning of time. And those people are often taken quite seriously uh, in the halls of government, whether they should or not. It's an interesting public policy question. But I would have thought that many of those persons would, would function as uh, be functional, uh, functional govern- government officials, is that your phrase, yes. under your three-part test. Or at least they'd have to have a very uh, long trial to figure out what, what the answer is. You know, such an individual doesn't have the approval of both superiors and inferiors that well, they're let's, actually let's operating Well, let's say he does, that, you know, that, uh, that he's in the White House or in the halls of Congress on a regular basis, and, and people know that he is taken very seriously by the elected official and that they have to, they have to listen to that fellow and do as he says because they know he speaks for the president or the senator or whatever. Again, just because someone's very influential – you have to go through these. I know factors. you keep saying they're influential and that's not enough, but why isn't it enough under your three part test? Because a person like that isn't able what, what, to. What part of that test do they yeah. fail specifically? One, two, three? Which, which portion and why? All three. All three, okay. Yes. All right, let's, uh, if you'd allow me to unpack please. that a little bit. I just thought it was worth playing that clip because I thought it was effectively done subtle but forceful in responding to Gorsuch badgering her with questions and then refusing to let her respond, which we see all the time from him. And it's got to be just maddening when you're up there trying to engage and being prevented from doing so. So I thought it was very deftly done. In the register of here's what we're not going to do, (laughs) Justice Gorsuch. But she didn't didn't say that, but then she kind of did. At one point, the Jones Day lawyer who was representing Prococo seemed to suggest that perhaps there is a, I don't know, constitutional right to engage in lobbying when, as here, the lobbying was perhaps paying someone to award a government contract to you. So let's roll that clip. I haven't seen a good explanation for why the government's theory here and the Margiotta theory would not cover the really influential lobbyist, maybe somebody who used to be chief of staff in the office has left, still knows everybody there, still can pick up the phone and get things done, as they said about Prococo, you know, why would that not be enough? And I think that's a major problem. It's a problem from a due process standpoint. 
because of the indeterminacy. And it's a problem from a First Amendment standpoint, because lobbying is constitutionally protected conduct. We're talking about petitioning the government for redress of grievances. And when you're chilling that type of conduct, that's a, that's a major problem. Wow. The First Amendment, just beyond religious freedom, <laughs> beyond compelled speech, like the right to lobby. Protects actual right? quid pro quo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, unless you think, listeners, that we are making a mountain out of a molehill, I will recall this opinion by Fifth Circuit Judge Jim Ho dissenting from an en banc rehearing in Zimmerman versus City of Austin, which is a challenge to the Austin City campaign contribution limits for city council members. So here's what Judge Ho had to say. To be sure, many Americans of good faith bemoan the amount of money spent on campaign contributions and political speech. But if you don't like big money in politics, then you should oppose big government in our lives, because the former is a necessary consequence of the latter. When government grows larger, when regulators pick more and more economic winners and losers, participation in the political process ceases to be merely a citizen's prerogative. It becomes a human necessity. This is the inevitable result of a government that would be unrecognizable to our founders. So if there is too much money in politics, it's because there's too much government. The size and scope of government makes such spending essential. I have to say, I love how they defend this stuff. Like, hey, redistributivist stunt queens, if you don't want big money in politics, then don't have big government. You socialist bitches brought this on yourselves. I mean... Am I right? That's, That's the, energy. the energy. That is the energy. Um, and and in some ways, it is the tear it all down sort of deep theory underlying <laughs> many of these doctrinal commitments that conservative judges and justices really harbor. It is refreshing to see it made explicit from time to time. And I think that is what we have on display here. That is what is really driving them, like a complete dismantling objective. And you can dress it up in whatever First Amendment clothing you want, but that's really what it's about. Lipstick on the First Amendment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, um, all right. So sticking with Prococo for another couple beats, Justice Thomas, not, you know, to be left out of this debate, voiced some real concerns about imposing ethical standards on government officials. Um, they were kind of dressed up as federalism <laughs> concerns. Um, but Always, the always. Concern, yeah, about frequently the anyway. Yeah, no. But, you know, clearly... If you listen, he seems to be concerned about imposing ethical standards just in general, as far as I can tell. I think my point is rather that it seems as though we are using a federal law to impose ethical standards on state activity. You know, there's Hmm. another argument that kind of hits different, given the various ethical issues swirling around the court and Justice Thomas and his spouse in particular. Let me just take a sip of my cocktail. I'm parched. So we've now said it's anyway. hits different a couple of times. I feel like we need to mention that this is something that Leah noted. We were discussing this episode that hits different. I did not know this. Did you know this, Melissa? It's a secret because track on Midnight's that's available right. only on purchased albums. And I have just been streaming it. So I did not know that. But I now need to actually purchase that song. I mean, obviously, Leah purchased it immediately and knew this, but the rest of us did not. So we are not true fans. Only Leah <laughs> I am a true fan. fan. We, we, got, um, we actually got tickets. We're going to go... I, oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to disclose how much we paid for tickets. It was not a small amount, but we're going to go in May. There was also some lighter moments in the Percoco argument, especially if you are a fan of the federal common law. So let's hear Justice Gorsuch letting loose with a little bombot. 
Yeah, where do they come official? from is my question. I think from a couple of places. One, they're inherent in the nature of being a public official. It's the sort of things we would look at to see whether someone is, in fact, acting as a public the, the official. The brooding omnipresence of the law. <laughs> I know. This is as funny as Gorsuch gets, honestly. I, so it reminded me of this moment a couple of years ago at the ACS convention where Justice Sotomayor noted that it had taken her and her colleagues a minute to figure out Justice Gorsuch's sense of humor. And she said, like, you know, he wasn't funny the way we were used to. And I have to say, I think we're all still getting used to his <laughs> sense of humor still. All these years hence, we still are. All these years, still getting used to it. All right, well, um, maybe we'll but, get there eventually. I don't, I mean, I don't know that we want to, honestly. There were a couple of actual funny moments in this week's sitting, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to those, but I actually didn't think this was one of them. Anyway, um, okay, so back to Justice Alito for a moment. Did you think that he was referencing a Clinton conspiracy theory with this question? What do you think needs to be shown to establish an agency relationship? Uh, let me give you this example. Suppose there is a situation in which the person who formally holds official power doesn't exercise it, and everybody knows that. So suppose it's a, uh, a popular governor who cannot run for re-election again, but the spouse of the governor runs, and everybody knows that the former governor is really the one pulling the strings. Everybody knows that, and if anybody asks the person who is holds the office as a formal matter, that person will say, don't bother me with this, just ask uh, my spouse. Would that be, would that person uh, be, could that person be convicted under the statute? <laughs> this is very specific for a hypothetical. Pretty specific, yeah. So, but who knows? I mean, he did change it from president to governor. So yeah. that definitely threw us off the trail. Clearly. <laughs> Inspector Gadget. <laughs> <laughs> well, for us to wonder. Which is interesting because I thought like Clinton hate was the Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, hate, kind so. of on that note. Kind of, I mean, yeah, not yeah, not exclusively Kavanaugh's domain. I mean, I guess. Mm-hmm. So clearly some, I think from the clips that we played, some very skeptical questioning from the conservative justices. Actually, though, even the liberal justices honestly yeah. gave the federal government a pretty hard time at points during this argument. Um, Everyone wants to make it safe for fraud again, i They I'd sort say. of do. I mean, look, yeah. some of the cases that the court has already decided that limit the ability of federal law to reach this sort of corrupt activity have been unanimous. And, you know, McDonald was unanimous. Kelly was unanimous. Kelly, the Bridgegate case, was authored by Justice Kagan. Um, so, look, I understand that justices across the ideological spectrum are concerned about giving too much power and discretion to federal prosecutors. I think that concern is well-founded. But I also think this line of cases poses a real threat to values like integrity and fair dealing and ethics in government. And I think the justices should be concerned about those potential consequences as well. And yet I expect that this will be just the latest installment of that long line of cases, making it harder and harder to go after this kind of fraud. Cool. All right. Good times. Um, So we'll be brief in the second of the two cases from Tuesday. So the second case in this pair of corruption cases is Simonelli versus United States. And I think we have to start our discussion of it by noting who argued it for Simonelli. And that was Michael Dreeben. So Dreeben is formerly of the Solicitor General's office. And for years, he was actually the deputy SG who handled the criminal law docket for that office, which meant that he argued on behalf of the federal government some of the really significant cases we walked through on the last episode. 
episode. So Skilling versus United States, Cleveland versus United States, McDonald versus United States. Like all of these were the cases in which the federal government was in front of the Supreme Court trying to defend convictions under various federal fraud statutes and in each case lost as the court narrowed the reach of those statutes further and further. And Dreeben is now in private practice at O'Malveny and there's nothing technically wrong with him taking on this representation. But it honestly made me pretty uneasy to have this person who for years was like the walking embodiment of the federal government's views of criminal law now at a firm leveraging his credibility on matters of federal criminal law and like trying to build on these cases that he argued for the other side that might further narrow the reach of the federal fraud statute. So I just felt, it made me feel icky, honestly. All right, so onto the arguments, though. So they were not quite as bad for the government as I had assumed going in, honestly. Like, it's possible this case could be a super narrow vacate and remand since the government has now more or less abandoned um, what's known as the right to control theory. So that was the theory the Second Circuit used in this case and in related fraud cases over the years. So basically, this is a bid-rigging case in which Simonelli secretly worked with state officials to be sure that his firm would be selected for these projects as part of the Buffalo billions plan. Um, And then the prosecutor's theory of fraud was that the state had a right to control its funds with full information about how those funds would flow in the bidding process. And this scheme deprived the state of that. So if that sounds kind of convoluted, it maybe kind of is. And in any event, the federal government has now abandoned that theory and is trying to recast it as something like material deception or fraudulent inducement and is arguing the evidence was sufficient to support a conviction under a proper theory anyway. And so there should just be a straight affirmance. It seemed to me that a straight affirmance was pretty unlikely in this scenario. But as you said, a narrow vacate and remand would mean the court could leave for another day the whole question of whether the fraudulent inducement theory was sufficient here. Um, and, you know, that has some elements and requirements that are similar to the right to control theory. So, you know, maybe they want to take some time to parse through that if, in fact, the right to control theory has been abandoned to some degree. So, again, this is a kind of weird, strange bedfellows coalition with the liberals being, I think, as skeptical as the conservatives are on this. And you have a straight line of cases that are all chipping away at the prospect of limiting fraud in government processes. So this seems like it's likely to add to that. It's just, will it add in a big way or in a more narrow way? Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Missouri legislators said the quiet part out loud with their total abortion ban. Quote, Almighty God is the author of life, end quote. They also said, quote, God doesn't give us a choice in this area. He is the creator of life. Plus, quote, from the biblical side of it, life does occur at the point of conception, end quote. Religious extremists are forcing all of us to live by their beliefs, as in the Alabama IVF case. Americans United for Separation of Church and State exists to stop this kind of abuse. On the eve of the 50th anniversary of Roe, Americans United and their allies sued Missouri, representing 14 clergy from seven different denominations. AU's lawsuit challenges Missouri's abortion bans as a violation of the separation of church and state. AU's guiding light is freedom without favor, equality without exception. AU works with partners on all sides of the aisle, of all religions and none, to ensure the wall between church and state stands strong for all. Keep up with this ongoing case at au.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The court also heard last week an extremely important case titled U.S. versus Texas. And if you're confused because we had earlier talked about an extremely important case called U.S. versus Texas, you would be forgiven, dear listener, because we have so many cases titled U.S. versus Texas. Um, this one is a challenge to President Biden's enforcement guidelines regarding certain provisions of immigration law particularly the provisions about which non-citizens are priorities for arrest and removal, as well as guidance about the factors to consider regarding whether a particular individual should be detained while immigration proceedings are ongoing. So in addition to this question of the lawfulness of that guidance memo, the case raises several other questions. So first, there's a really big standing question. Does Texas have standing to challenge this guidance memo at all? There's also a really important remedy question. So if Texas does have standing and if the guidance memo is invalid, what remedy might Texas have? So can a federal court vacate the agency action entirely? Can it you know, issue a nationwide injunction requiring the executive to implement the immigration statutes in a particular way? Can courts do this in general under the APA? And are they prohibited from doing so in particular in this case involving the Immigration and Nationality Act? And I'll just say... From the start, this argument got really spicy really fast with some of the justices, I'm thinking particularly of the Chief Justice and Coach Kavanaugh, being extremely dismissive of the federal government's position, both on the remedy and on the merits. Um, They characterized the government's position as extreme and unprecedented. And in particular, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to think it would be a major problem if courts could not hear these challenges to how the executive branch is implementing federal immigration law, which is really odd because it seems like just a couple of decisions ago, Justice Kavanaugh was all for the political branches speaking for the people on a fraught issue until he wasn't. So here we are. But maybe let's, (laughs) I mean, like, is it too much to ask that he just stay consistent? But maybe let's just go through the different steps of the argument and talk about how things went at each stage. So let's talk first about standing. So Kate, can you explain the standing issue here? Sure. Okay. So from the outset of the oral argument, both the Chief Justice and Justice Alito seemed to suggest the federal government's argument that the states lacked standing to challenge the guidance memo was foreclosed by the court's cases. And yeah, you heard that right. They raised, without any hint of irony, the idea that they had to basically put their critical faculties on hold and just respect precedents, giving states wide latitude to establish standing because this is a court that takes stare decisis oh so seriously. Very, very seriously. So here's the Chief Justice on that point. I would have thought you'd have a little more concern about an opinion of ours that's four months old. I mean, it's not even out of the cradle yet, and you're throwing it under the bus. And just for extra chuckles, let's add Justice Alito pretending that he cares about precedent. So this is a rule of special hostility to state standing. How is that consistent with Massachusetts versus EPA, where the court said that there is a special solicitude for state standing? And just not to let these statements go unchallenged, 
we need to say that just because the court has said that states can establish standing based on theories not available to private plaintiffs, and the court has said that, that doesn't mean the states, you know, even putting aside the court's selective commitment to stare decisis, still that doesn't mean that states can walk into court whenever they think the federal government has adopted bad immigration policy. Here, there are serious flaws with the district court's standing analysis. So that needs to be said. Well, I I thought this was actually interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot you could say about Massachusetts versus EPA. This is a decision written by Kate's justice, Justice Stevens, which does take, I think, an unusual view of standing and bases it on the fact that the litigant is the state and that certain kinds of protections or certain the availability of process should be there because it is a state as opposed to some other ordinary kind of litigant. But he was very clear in that opinion that this was not opening the door to states just being able to sue on any kind of theory of injury. And, and you know, that I think is what was missing from this question. He's like, you know, is this your king, Justice Stevens, liberal Justice Stevens, Massachusetts versus EPA? Well, then, like, you know, everyone has standing. And it, I think it was a little more nuanced than it, that it in was. Massachusetts versus EPA. It was. And look, and, 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 usually and, and Chief Justice Roberts was, you know, livid and in unusually sharp and I think angry dissent in Massachusetts versus yes. EPA. And yes. and yet here, you know, it is it, he, he's all too happy to suggest that it kind of answers the standing question in this case, although the situation is so, so different. There was also a little spice from Justice Kagan, who pointed out to her favorite, or maybe it's her least favorite, punching bag, Texas Solicitor General 2D Judd Stone, who seems to think that states can challenge any federal immigration policy under this particular theory of standing. Um, And again, Justice Kagan seemed to be pointing out that that was really problematic, to say the least. So let's play that clip. General, do you think that there's any immigration policy that you could not challenge under the way you view standing? I think that's hard to discuss in the abstract. There might well be, Your Honor, but it shouldn't come as... It's hard to think of, I guess, is what I'm saying. I mean, if all you need to do is to say we have a dollar's worth of costs and you don't even need to think about the benefits on the other side. I mean, every immigration policy, you let in more people, you let in fewer people, is going to have some effect on a state's fiscal uh, 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 condition. Uh, Maybe they'll get less or more tax dollars. Maybe they'll have to spend less or more money. I mean, every single immigration policy. And then, you know, not to mention all the other policies in the world, that if a state comes in and says, I, I got a dollar's worth of costs that I can show you, I mean, we're just going to be in, this, in a situation where every administration is confronted by uh, suits by states that can, you know, bring a, a policy to a dead halt, to a dead stop, um, by just showing a dollar's worth of costs? This exchange prompted another death barb from Justice Kagan to Judd with two Ds. It's not responsive to my question. And not to be outdone, she then pleaded with the Chief Justice to be allowed to continue murdering (laughs) Judd 2D Stone right before her colleagues. Can I I say something about that? Can I? One more? One more. (laughs) I just love it. Elena, leave him alone. No, she said, he said, go ahead. He said, just one more. (laughs) I'm saying, girl, he's dead. (laughs) Let him be. Give him a proper burial. Uh, No sympathy, though. um, Neither did she. (laughs) She had no sympathy either. The point 
that Justice Kagan was pressing here is one that we've highlighted previously in our preview and one that friend of the pod, Commander Steve Vladek, has raised in his amicus brief that was submitted in this case. And that is that Texas is not only challenging every Biden administration immigration policy, but that the state is selecting which judges may hear those challenges by choosing to file their cases in divisions within districts where there's only one judge or, in some cases, there are only two judges, but they're both Republican appointees or they've both been appointed by Donald Trump. And that's a kind of forum shopping that does not augur well for a sane system of judicial administration. And here's Justice Kagan on that point. I mean, just to think about just the backdrop of this case and what's going on here, I mean, just add to the notion, not your fault. This is not, you know, uh, in Texas, there are divisions within districts. You can pick your trial court judge. Um, uh, You know, you play by the rules. That's fine. But you pick your trial court judge. One judge stops a federal immigration policy in its tracks because you have a kind of sort of speculative argument that your budget is going to be affected. You know, she was she was nicer here than she had to be. Right. It's not your fault. Oh, no, I think it kind of is. Well, it kind of is your fault. <laughs> like, Maybe she felt bad about the murder that preceded it. I'm not sure. You don't have to feel bad. Like, <laughs> he brought it on himself. That's true. Um, okay, so let's shift to remedy um, because this part of the argument was really, really interesting. The question again here is whether district courts have the power to invalidate presidential action on a nationwide basis or you know, issue a nationwide injunction regarding implementation of the INA. And the federal government was making kind of two distinct arguments here. One, a specific argument under the immigration statutes, and then actually a broader argument, which as we will describe, some of the justices really got their dander up over, um, that maybe in general courts have been engaging in remedial overreach in their understanding of what the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, and in particular Section 706.2, provides. So that provision contains language allowing that courts can set aside unlawful agency action, but the federal government is arguing that maybe that language has long been misunderstood and that it actually doesn't permit the remedy of vacature. As we previously suggested, there is language in the court's decision from last term, Garland versus Aleman Gonzalez, that strongly reads as a statement that the court already decided that the INA forbids district courts from entering injunctions requiring the executive to implement the INA in a particular way. And here's what Justice Alito wrote for the court in Aleman Gonzalez. Section 1252 F1 generally prohibits lower courts from entering injunctions that order federal officials to take or to refrain from taking actions to enforce, implement, or otherwise carry out the specified statutory provisions, end quote. Now, since we all know how much this court, and Justice Alito in particular, cares about precedent, as the justices were just suggesting, I'm sure that they will be bestirred to resolve this issue post-haste. What do you think, Kate? The language seems pretty clear, and yet I'm not sure. Um, Hmm. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I'm not sure that the justices will agree that this is as obviously settled as that language seems to suggest is just the way that at least two of the justices seemed completely appalled 
by the suggestion that courts couldn't invalidate agency actions on a nationwide basis. And here they're actually responding not to the narrow Section 1252 argument, um, but more broadly to this APA argument. So the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh repeatedly invoked their time in the D.C. Circuit, during which, as they suggested, like literally, this is basically what they said, guys in my court of appeals enjoined agency actions all the time as the reason that it was legally permissible for them to do so. And I mean, I will note that most of those cases didn't involve the INA, but, you know, whatever. Um, But we have to play some of these clips, mostly because until this argument, I would not have imagined it was possible to talk in quite such a fratty register about vacature under the APA, but Coach Kavanaugh managed. I mean, you kind of just have to hear it to believe it. So first, let's play the Chief Justice with the warm-up. Counsel, maybe we can move on to individual question now, and I'm sure that some of it will deal with remedy, which is the one area area we haven't addressed yet. Uh, And in that area... Uh, your, your position on uh, vacatur. Uh, that sounded to me to be fairly radical uh, and inconsistent with, for example, you know, what those of us who are on the D.C. Circuit would do, you know, five times before breakfast. That's what you do in an APA case. And all of a sudden you're telling us that, no, uh, you can't vacate it. Uh, you do something different. Uh, are you overturning that whole established practice under the APA? Okay. So that's the chief justice (laughs) calling the federal government's argument radical, inconsistent with the experience of those of us who are on the D.C. circuit. And so then Kavanaugh jumps into the fray. Well, uh, can I move to remedy then? Because I still have some some problems with that, as you might imagine. Uh, Set aside, you said the judges on the D.C. circuit haven't paid attention to text, context, and history. I guess I would respectfully... (laughs) Uh, push back pretty strongly on that. I sat with judges like Silberman and Garland and Tatel and Edwards and Williams. They paid a lot of attention to that. And the government never has made this argument in all the years of the APA, at least not that I remember sitting there for 12 years. I haven't seen it made. It's a pretty radical rewrite, as the Chief Justice says, of what's been standard administrative law practice. And you devote three pages in your brief to this complete change that all these judges have been doing for all these years, and the government comes up and acknowledges that in case after case after case with the labor, or energy, environmental, and uh, I think it's a big step. And you say they're not paying attention to the text. Yeah, we did. Set aside means set aside. Then that's always been understood to mean uh, the, the rule's no longer in place. No one's really had a this, no case has ever said what you're saying anywhere. No one, you know, it's a recent law review proposal. Good for that. But, uh, you know, that's not been the law. And so I find it pretty astonishing that you come up here uh, and make it. And, and I realize it's not your, you know, the main part of your submission, but I'm just going to push back pretty strongly on the, you know, three pages for just, just toss out decades of, of this court's law, of circuit law, and you've got public citizen and Texas coming after you on this. They don't usually unite in an administrative law case, in my experience, uh, and they both say your position is completely unprecedented on that. So uh, that's not really a question, but that is a, <laughs> that is a comment on which I, what I think is a pretty extreme argument. And I know it's not your whole argument, but this piece of the argument, so I don't want to overstate what I'm saying here. Just this piece of your argument, I think, is pretty extreme. So, I mean, Larry, Merrick, David, <laughs> Harry, we were all just doing it. Like, 
<laughs> How like, could it be all wrong? All just sitting <laughs> around the DC Circuit House, like just doing it. <laughs> the, just like the affront that he thought the federal government was. I mean, it was just wild. And you know, Gorsuch. We're not going to play any clips from Gorsuch because we already have so many clips. But but Gorsuch actually, to his credit, was like, I wasn't on the D.C. circuit, which, you know, he wasn't. Um, but he was also, I think, correctly <laughs> saying without saying explicitly, like, I don't know, maybe we should look at the language of the APA. And that's all the federal government was asking the court to do. Like, yes, for a long time, everyone has assumed that courts have this power, but maybe we should take a fresh look. And, you know, who knows what we'll find. But Kavanaugh was just so offended by that suggestion. Well, the whole exchange actually prompted an interesting follow-up from Justice Jackson and then this very interesting quip from Justice Kagan. So here's Justice Jackson with Justice Kagan following. Yes, as you might imagine, um, I would like to circle back to uh, the concerns that the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh raised about vacater and the argument that you're making in this case. And seems um, to be a kind of DC Circuit cartoon. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> um, so I kind of love this. Like Justice Jackson's, like you know, at one point the frat got co-educated, and I was there too. <laughs> And then Justice Kagan steps in and is like, um, you guys are literally a cartel. (laughs) And it should be noted here that in 1999, President Clinton nominated then Elena Kagan, former government employee, former law professor, to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. But the Senate Judiciary Committee's Republican chairman, Orrin Hatch, never scheduled a hearing on her, which effectively ended her nomination. And to my mind, with this exchange, she doesn't seem to be especially bothered about having missed out on this particular stint on the D.C. frat. She's like, I dodged a bullet. (laughs) And I still ended up here, so... Like, I didn't get paddled, didn't get hazed, and here I am anyway. So (laughs) all good. So that was a fascinating set of exchanges. But let's also make sure we have some time to talk about the merits. So here is another, I think, a relatively lengthy but very much worth playing exchange between, again, Chief Justice Roberts and Solicitor General Prelogger. Um, So let's play it. And then I kind of want to try to articulate why I found it just so maddening. Let's say that I disagree with you on standing and on the remedies, and I have to reach the merits. And when we get to the merits, I think shall means shall. Then we're in a position where, as you see it, Congress has passed a law that is, is, it is impossible for the executive uh, to comply with. Now, it's our job to say what the law is, not whether or not it can be possibly implemented or whether there are difficulties there. Um, and I don't think we should change that responsibility just because Congress and the executive can't agree on something that's possible to address this this problem. I don't think we should let them off the hook. So shouldn't we just say what we think the law is, even if we think shall means shall, and then leave it for them to sort that out? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, let me take a stab at trying to persuade you that these considerations of resource constraints do properly inform the task for this court, which is to interpret the meaning of shall and the statute itself. And the first Well, it seems to me that you're arguing with one of the predicates to my question, that we think, I think anyway, shall means shall. What do we do in that situation? If this court were to actually adopt that interpretation of the statute, uh, then I think that it would be incredibly destabilizing on the ground. I I didn't ask you what it would be. I want you to know what we should do. Should we still fulfill our responsibility to say what the law is, and then it's up to Congress and the executive to figure out a way to comply with that? 
I think if the court did that, and the reason I'm turning to the practical implications here is because in the meantime, while Congress and the executive tried to figure it out, it would absolutely scramble immigration enforcement efforts on the ground. It would mean that DHS, I think, if it were under this kind of judicially enforceable obligation to treat each of those shalls as a mandatory shall. So you're still arguing, I'm sorry, you're still arguing that that would be wrong to say shall means shall. I think it would. I think it would be wrong to say the shall means shall, and I would. I would welcome the chance to explain, as a matter of statutory interpretation, why that's so. But at the very least, I don't think the court should announce it as a judicially cognizable injury here that could justify interference by the courts in light of the practical ramifications. I'm just an umpire calling balls and strikes. Yeah. yeah. So so <laughs> let, yeah, so let me try to figure out. I mean, my I really my head felt like it was going to explode listening to this uh, line of questioning, and there was just something that was like this really kind of performative obtuseness in on display by Chief Justice Roberts, like this. I'm a simple judge. I'm a simple umpire. I say what the law is, and then you all in the political branches work out how to comply with it. It would be improper for me to worry about those things, but. I mean, saying what the law is doesn't and shouldn't happen with blinders on about consequences, including the possibility of actually complying with the law as courts understand it. And I mean, I think part of why I felt like my head was going to explode was because Roberts was once actually pretty good on this kind of stuff. Like, remember his opinion in King versus Burwell when he refused to embrace an interpretation of the Affordable Care Act that would have completely and fatally undermined the ability of the act to function as intended, right? He was like, no, we can't read that word in that way or it would completely completely caused the Affordable Care Act to death spiral. So that can't be what Congress wanted. Like that's all over that opinion. And interpreting statutes is not some scientific undertaking that happens in a vacuum and it shouldn't be. And then, you know, that's in addition to all of these background principles about the importance of enforcement discretion in the context of the executive and immigration law in particular. And it's just like, ah, Roberts, it's so hard to pin down. Like there's King versus Burwell. Last week I taught his opinions in the census citizenship case and the DACA rescission case. And he is just in those cases so far from the Roberts that was on display in this argument. And I just, the last thing I'll say about this line was that it called to my mind. You remember we talked last term about law professor David Knoll had this great tweet that I think he's since deleted <laughs> after the film Don't Look Up, right? About the asteroid. Why did he, why did he delete that? That should like, be in his so tenure good. file. It should be in his tenure it should file. Be in the Louvre. It's a great tweet. That tweet was so good. <laughs> um, so, but he, but anyway, it was something like, the film Don't Look Up would have been had a like higher degree of verisimilitude or something if the Supreme Court, based on the major questions doctrine, had enjoined NASA's efforts to actually take out that asteroid or something. I mean, that was not it was much better than that. But that, <laughs> that was, was the gist. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's very funny. Yeah. And that was kind of the energy that Roberts, I thought, had in this line of questioning. Like, it's not our concern if our rulings will like destroy the planet or will make it absolutely impossible for the federal government to function. All we do is look at some words and say what they mean and then, you know, go home and pour coffee. Like, it was just crazy. That said, um, both the chief and Coach Kavanaugh did press 2D Judge Stone on this same question of how exactly the federal government could possibly function without enforcement discretion and guidance to assist fuel agents, for example, in exercising that discretion in the face of the 11 million removable non-citizens and the fact that there are like 6,000 ICE agents in the country. So, yeah, no, he went back and forth on this. Yep, Uh, Totally. Anyway, um, but yes, more of the energy was reserved for. So what if I blow this all up? I'm doing law. Yes. I'm doing law. Yeah. Okay. 
One possibility in terms of outcome here is that we could get some combination of the conservative justices who agree that review would be barred under 1252 F1, and then maybe the Democrat appointees who agree with the federal government on the merits that the memo is perfectly permissible, uh, and maybe they all come together and there's a majority against Texas that you know, sort of, again, a strange bedfellows kind of assembly. Um, Although, I mean, I I think it is very clear that Justice Alito is going to vote with Texas no matter what. And I think it's also very clear that the D.C. Circuit Mafia on the court is very, D.C. Circuit Mafia slash fraternity is very unhappy with the APA argument. But it just seems less clear about where they all are on 1252. So So Mm -hmm. that that seems possible that the federal government ekes out a win stitching together these like different coalitions. But we we also should take a step back and acknowledge that it is truly insane that this case won't be unanimous on the merits. And I mean, a standing too, maybe, but certainly on the merits, this guidance doesn't require any officer to do anything in a particular case. It is literally just about setting priorities for setting apprehension priorities. and removal. And if you can't have priorities... Which like, should be within the administration's purview. Of course it should be. And that's true as to immigration law and law in general, and is actually required for the sensible execution and implementation of all law. And every administration has done it, and it would be malpractice not to, honestly. So, you know, it's kind of madness to me that even if the Biden administration wins this case, there will still be justices who will say that they're fine depriving this president, though I am sure not all presidents, of this kind of clear authority that the president has to possess. So that's probably enough on that case. Maybe we'll just say a, take a beat on the last case the court heard argued this week, Wilkins versus United States, which is a case about whether the statute of limitations in the Quiet Title Act is a jurisdictional limit or a claim processing rule. And if it's the latter, it can be waived. Um, you know, there's a chance the plaintiffs lose either way. So it's not totally clear what's at stake in this case. But I did think the oral argument gestured at this kind of interesting, like intertemporal question about what the court should do about earlier cases that were decided based on interpretive principles the court no longer uses. And like this is a very particular instance of it because the way the court used to use the term jurisdictional was very loose and it has since acknowledged that it was very loose and it's trying to be more precise now. And so like this is pretty specific, but there is, I think, this larger question about how different the court's approach to statutory interpretation is today from its approach in earlier eras and sort of what that means about how it should treat earlier statutory precedents. And I thought this came up in some pretty interesting ways, actually, in the Sackett Clean Water Act argument earlier this Mm -hmm. term. And so, you know, I think there's just like a lot of interesting questions about interpretation that Wilkins sort of dipped a toe in. I thought the case really revealed some interesting interpersonal Mm. dynamics that I wanted to highlight. Um, You know me. What's going on? (laughs) Hmm. This was surprising. (laughs) I know what you're going to talk about. It's very surprising. Well, so there is one thing I wanted to highlight from oral argument, and it was an uncharacteristically friendly, I might even say warm, exchange between Justices Alito and Kagan. Yes, I think if it had used subject matter jurisdiction in... Okay, so... I think you're giving too much away there, Mr. McCoy. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe Mr. McCoy could answer my next question, which is... Although Justice Kagan and I like to ask each other, uh, I'll reciprocate. But anyway. Um, we haven't uh, even given me a chance to, but okay, go ahead. Now I've forgotten what my next question is. Well, let me, let me rephrase no, my No, no, I, I know. I, it's come back to me. Uh, so are you- hmm. That was Is not, there a thawing of relations here? They were like, there was genuine like mirth and warmth in their voices. It was so weird. I like that as a general matter, that that pair, I mean, if Kagan is working him over in some fashion, I am all for it. But but it was puzzling to me just like how 
genuinely friendly and jovial they sounded. I, I'm still holding a grudge on her behalf for his Wall Street Journal comments where it was basically like, you can't criticize the court about it. It's crossing a line. Yeah. And I'm just like, I mean, so clearly Justice Kagan is not a Virgo or she would be literally nursing this grudge until the end of time. And since since she is not, I will nurse it for her. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, this seemed like weirdly warm. Maybe he's invited her to Jackson Hole. Like, Elena, my friends have given me their cabin for the weekend. Why don't you come hang out with me and Martha Ann? Well, she used to go shooting with Justice Scalia. I don't know, I like, know. if she has any kind I of know. similar golf with Sam. Like, I don't know what that, I don't know what, I don't know. I don't Maybe, know what oh Sam's God, like I love them in like are. in spa robes and they're like doing sheet masks. <laughs> and he's like, okay, put this yogurt on your face. <laughs> like, like, put it on your face. Pedicures, all of it. Spa with Sam. Oh, God. I love that for them a little I bit. I guess. <laughs> they getting better her than us. I mean, I mean. I... All right. Should we pivot to this coming week and then on to news and culture? <laughs> Definitely. Let's do the week and then we'll do news and culture. Um, I can't wait for news and culture. Okay. okay. Yeah, everyone's, right. You've been very patient. So, <laughs> okay. I've been very, like, let me just get through this. This week is going to be one of the most explosive of this term, and I'm not being hyperbolic. So in our last episode, we extensively previewed this week's two biggest cases, 303 Creative versus Elenis and Moore versus Harper. And we'll recap these arguments on our next episode. But Kate, tell us what we need to know. Well, I just, you know, so... Moore versus Harper, this big independent state legislature theory thingy fanfic case is being argued on Wednesday. And, you know, we mentioned in our preview that there is extensive amicus briefing opposed to the ISLT, including tons of conservative luminaries and like a huge numerical asymmetry, just tons of really big briefs opposed to the ISLT, a much smaller number in support of it. Um, and we yeah, also- Very upside down. Yeah. Very upside down. And we also now know who is arguing the case, and that just seemed worth flagging. Um, and so arguing in opposition to the ISLT is not one, not two, but three solicitors general. So former- Here come the generals! <laughs> um, so former SG Don Verrilli will represent the state respondent. That's like the North Carolina Department of Justice. Former acting solicitor general Neil Katyal will represent the non-state respondent. So that's North Carolina voters and several organizations. And current SG Elizabeth Prelogger will represent the federal government. So that is like a lot of heavy lawyers. I mean, uh, yeah. literally big guns. Yeah. And then on the other Literally side big is David Thompson, a lawyer at the firm of Cooper Kirk. Will this advocacy asymmetry matter? Who knows? But I honestly can't recall like a three SG on one side argument lineup ever. They probably have Seth Waxman on like phone a friend, totally. like on the side. I wonder if he feels left out. He's like, why am I not arguing in this case? Yeah, like you did students for fair admissions. You're fine. Totally. You're fine. <laughs> You're fine. So All right. I'm, okay. I'm so looking forward to that argument. I mean, I'm terrified, but I'm ho I'm glad that these are the advocates. Right. So we will recap those arguments in our next episode. And since we've previewed them, if you want to know what's going on with them, just hit the flip and go back and listen to one episode before that. And, and actually, now we should it's also, time. But oh, sorry. sorry I'm making you wait for 10 more seconds, Melissa, because let's okay. also mention that over the summer, we did a special like full hour we on did. this case and the ISLT with Jamel Bowie and Carolyn Shapiro. So if you're super interested in going deep, uh, pull up that summer episode and listen to it. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Okay, is it time? Now we can move on to news and All right. court culture. Scotus um, news. Okay, so let's start with news. Um, and the first thing we just wanted to mention was that the court declined to issue a stay of execution in the case of Kevin Johnson, who challenged his execution based on a finding by a special prosecutor that his original prosecutor had been biased against black defendants. Um, so again, the court denied his request for a stay. Um, Justice Jackson, joined by Justice Sotomayor, noted her dissent at the time and then the next day actually issued a written opinion that followed the vote. Um, And this was the second written opinion that she's issued. She also dissented from the denial of cert in a death penalty case in early November. I note that she, I think, is going to be active in not just noting but explaining her views in these cases where the court all too often, as we have noted, gives no reasons or no explanation at all. Um, And I've just made me like I'm really looking forward to when she starts actually authoring merits opinions but we probably have a few months to wait before that happens all right SCOTUS also granted certiorari before judgment and set the Biden student loan forgiveness plan for oral argument in February so this will keep the program on hold until the court actually decides the case the Solicitor General's office had asked the court to vacate the injunction entered by the Eighth Circuit, and the court treated that application as a petition for certiorari and set the case to be heard in February, though we don't know yet the exact date for oral argument. The Biden administration was going to start actually processing loan forgiveness by the end of the year, but this means that it now cannot do that. Um And because the Supreme Court has apparently not unleashed enough chaos in the last six months, it's decided that, you know, it has an appetite for more. You only live once. So just stop all the student loan forgiveness. I guarantee we will be returning to this case in good time. So this was a major, major cert grant. Um, And again, sort of of the vein about, you know, policy priorities on the extent of executive power. This is going to be a really big case. Yeah. And another case with enormous standing questions. And I do think it'll matter a lot how the Biden administration kind of messages around and talks about this case in the Supreme Court, because, you know, it's going to have very tangible consequences for millions and millions of people, what the court does here. For a lot of very young voters who are likely to be the beneficiaries of this program if it were actually allowed to go into effect. That's right. All right. Is it time? It's time. Is it time? Okay. All right. The latest on Alico or Alicto? I think I like Alicto. Um, Alicto. Alicto. Some updates regarding skincare (laughs) maven Sam Alito. So a very brief reminder of what's at issue here. So following Jody Cantor and Joe Becker's bombshell reporting on, quote unquote, Operation Higher Court, which was the actual name of a deliberate influence operation spearheaded by evangelical minister and former anti-abortion activist Rob Schenck, which included a dinner attended by two of Schenck's emissaries and the Alitos, at which the outcome of the Hobby Lobby case may or may not have been disclosed. 
after all that came to light, some congressional leadership had questions. So our our friend and former guest, Senator Whitehouse, together with Representative Hank Johnson, sent the court a letter. We referenced this letter earlier in the episode, or at least the response to it. And the letter posed a number of questions, including whether the court would be investigating these allegations and whether the court might revisit some of its practices with respect to things like gifts and travel and other ethics matters. Well... Our friends on the Hill at the Senate Judiciary Committee and the House Judiciary Committee got a response. But I have to say, it was a bit of a deflating response. Uh, It came from the court's legal counsel, Ethan Torrey. And let me just say, I was a little surprised to think about the court having a lawyer. (laughs) But here we are, (laughs) making attorneys get attorneys. Anyway, um, Ethan Torrey, who is the court's legal counsel, issued um, a response. And it mostly involves sort of anodyne denials of impropriety and reminders that under the relevant ethical standards, which I should say are negligible here, these sorts of things aren't really an issue because the justices aren't necessarily required to report these kinds of goodies, if you will, as gifts. They're not considered gifts. And this was a big part of the letter, sort of explaining that um, meals, stays at vacation homes, hospitality, those are not gifts to be considered under the very limited ethical rules to which the court subscribes. So there's that. But then I got a little tease. So one of our listeners um, slid into my DMs, if you will, to let us know that this person knows Ethan Tory, And he wanted us to know because I think he suspected we would be very skeptical of this response. But he wanted us to know that Tory is actually a really good guy and a very good lawyer. In fact, he was described as a lawyer's lawyer. And I believe it. I like I I do not dispute that because this is a very lawyerly letter. This is exactly the kind of response you expect from someone who is responding on behalf of a client who has been accused of wrongdoing. Because it basically says there is nothing to see here because there are no rules or laws that cover this alleged misconduct. Therefore, it is not misconduct. There is no rule that prohibits a justice from getting a free vacation at a rich person's Jackson Hole vacation home. So thank you so much. I'll see you on the flip side. I mean, so I am going to be less <laughs> generous about this letter. Okay. Um, and also, did Tori himself slide into your DMs? I wonder. Was this like an assumed no, identity or is it somebody no, you knew? No, it's no, actually somebody no, you know. some, someone I know. Okay. Anyway, um, you know, I a couple things. One, sure, maybe this is the letter you send on behalf of a client who's been accused of wrongdoing. But I don't think Sam Alito is Ethan Tori's client, honestly. Like the legal counsel to the court is this, you know, usually pretty internal facing operation that like writes top mm-hmm. memos, um, cover memos to the conference, all the justices, sometimes advises on, you know, definitely advises on ethics matters that pertain to the justices and to clerks maybe, and other court personnel. Maybe Ethan Tory is like he's he's lawyering for all the justices. I can imagine this is just the only kind of gift situation we know about. There might be other yeah, gift situations about yeah. which we don't know. No, and, and again, but just this sort of the public facing nature of this letter, it's obviously, you know, to the hill, but quickly made public, um, is just not a posture you typically see, you know, the legal counsel in. And honestly, more mm-hmm. than that, I did find it kind of weird in tone. Um, and I will note that <laughs> Sherilyn Eiffel on Twitter at one point sort of questioned whether it was real. Um, and I actually thought, here's what <laughs> I thought was so weird about the letter, was was very careful in terms of the way it described the ethics 
obligations and the consistency of these reported events with those obligations. But then there was this like really gratuitous reference to Politico. So New York Times broke this story and the letter says, well, Politico was unable to locate anyone who heard about the decision in Hobby Lobby directly from Alito or his wife. And okay, but that's also what we know from the Times, right? The Times also said Mrs. Wright denies that this happened. So no, the Times also didn't report anybody who directly heard this. But the point of the story was that there is lots of circumstantial evidence confirming it. And Politico actually also reported that. And it's also the case that the Hobby Lobby leak isn't even the most important part of the story as it's far as, as we're concerned, as, as you said really it's clearly in our story. last episode. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just a little bit non-responsive to the larger <laughs> institutional questions that the story raises. Um, so those were some of my reactions to the letter. I don't dispute that Ethan Torrey is a nice guy and probably a really terrific lawyer. I'm sure all of that is true. Um, again, it made me wonder, like, you know, who is the actual client here? Is it the court more generally? Is it Justice Alito specifically? Is it the chief justice? I mean, I imagine this this letter had to go across the chief justice's desk oh, before sure. it went yeah. anywhere. So, you know, there's that. Although the chief justice, as you have reminded me, um, has his own lawyer for purposes of the court's administrative function. Right. So, you know, there's that. It, it was sort of an interesting tone. I mean, to some degree, it, it struck me a little bit like sort of the kind of letters that ethics lawyers in the government typically write. Um, you know, you just you get this question like, can I buy this stock as a member of this agency? Mm -hmm. And someone's like, okay, I've looked at XYZ rule and no, you cannot buy that stock. And so there's sort of a kind of straightforward aspect to it. Um, but this isn't a straightforward no, issue in right. part because there isn't, you know, there's not a lot of law or regulation around no. this question. And I think specifically the fact that Sheldon Whitehouse and Hank Johnson were asking about this um, is the, que the the underlying question that I think was actually stated was, you know, we're investigating this because we want to know if there should be rules. And yeah. he's basically like, yeah, there's nothing to, there's nothing nothing to, to see, see here yeah. because there's nothing to see. Right. <laughs> like, and maybe that means there needs to be something to see. Certainly the authors of the letter, Senator Whitehouse and Representative Johnson, were not satisfied with that letter. And they basically fired back another letter saying the Supreme Court has reiterated Alito's denials, but didn't substantively answer any of our questions and called the letter an embodiment of the problems at the court around ethics issues. So I think we I mean, know that the Hill kind is of not our done point. with this issue. Yeah. Yeah. They're still coming for you. Like, there'll be time after the holidays. Actually, even before that. Well, I mean, but like after the holidays, too, I think a lot of the energy will come from the Senate Judiciary Committee and White House, who yeah. literally will, I think, be like a dog with a bone about this. Maybe not so much from the House if, you know, like there's going to be a change in leadership. But I mean, I think the Senate by itself is enough to kind of really put some heat on this. Anyway. Definitely. But before the changeover, right, the House Judiciary Committee is, I yes. think, going to hold hearings yes. on Operation Higher Court this week. So I don't know. Do we? I don't think we know yet who is testifying, but I will be very interested in those hearings. Cannot wait. <laughs> oh, um, can, well, I, can I say, I took your recommendation and I listened to the New York Times, The Daily podcast this morning that had an interview uh, with, I think it was Jody Cantor and Reverend mm -hmm. Schenk. And oh, my God, like, 
I almost walked into traffic at one point because it was like so jaw dropping. Um, it's pretty jaw dropping. Like you picked yeah. your jaw up off the floor after the initial reporting, and then it was like back on the floor because I think there was a lot more, yeah. at least more kind of color and detail like in this the interview. The training, like they literally had like here's how. But first of all, Reverend yes. Shank described this influence campaign like matchmaking. This was like hinge yes. for justices. Like so, <laughs> we were matching donor rich people couples with justice couples and like we like you know, tailored it it was i mean it's all he a said, little like yeah it's a little it, gross it he described himself as basically a matchmaker yeah. he said we would feel out what justices what justice pairs would be good pairs by feeling out personalities interests station in life to figure out where there was a real possibility of a meaningful relationship a meaningful between one relationship. of our couples as he described them and a justice couple i mean it was incredibly calculated. And then these couples, again, which he referred to repeatedly as our couples, were trained in the rules and the rhythms and the protocols of life inside the Supreme Court. This so is like put Temptation this Island. Briefing. This is like Temptation <laughs> totally. Island or Fuckboy Island for justices. Like, oh my God. I was not going to go there, but there was something really weird about these like set up like double dates. It was just really strange. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, this he put, he put together a manual that says like here's how you approach a justice yeah. here's how you introduce yeah. people to the you justices don't call here's them the justice language Alito, you use. like hello mr justice Miss, and then he you knows Miss, you yeah. get it you get the protocol it was wild <laughs> and then this couple that's at the center of the hobby lobby story the rights shank describes as having been particularly good at this like getting it and then lo and behold they became real friends with the alitos um and you know shank says and this was also in the times piece although honestly i hadn't focused on it at the time not just alito point, remember she was describing justice scalia as nino and hanging out with maureen oh, totally yeah but it's the alitos who stayed yes. with the rights at their home in jackson hole wyoming as one and does in a casual friendship Kate. I mean, you know, right? Remember, Alito said in his denials to the Times, and then also through the weird letter from Tory, that this was a casual and purely social relationship. And okay, it was social. I'm not, no one's saying it was anything else other than that. But casual? Like, no, no, no. Casual is like you go to someone's house and they made pigs in a blanket and gave you a cocktail. That's a casual relationship. When right. you are staying the night, when you are putting your toothbrush in their bathroom and using their towels. That's not just casual. Not casual. It's not casual. Like, I don't even think we've been to each other's houses and spent the night. And, like, we see I've, each other. We've been to those houses, but not spent the night. Not, not put on, like, night. pajamas and slippers. We have not done that. <laughs> Come down in the morning in your bathrobe to get some coffee. Like, to be clear, I would, but that's intimacy. I like, I wouldn't do that with people have a casual relationship with. No. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's not a casual yeah, friendship. Like, this is hinge. <laughs> like,. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, if people are interested in this story in the way that we are and you haven't listened to that episode of The Daily, please oh, do God. that. That Daily piece and the follow-on piece from The Times, I think, made clear to me that it that the Times seems to be staying on this story. And I am glad. This is really important. So I will say other people need to get on the story. So I just want to give a shout out to Alex Wagner and MSNBC who had me on last week to talk about this. I think more people should be talking about this. Like, yeah. this is Weird as fuck. This is just really. Yes. They bought a building. They raised thirty million, more than thirty million dollars, and then Shank talks about it like there was this lovely Victorian row house across the street from yep. the court, and so I bought it. And then I would look every day into the court and send prayer missiles with my mind <laughs> into the court. Like 
what? Like, what is He does happening? say that. And to be fair, like, look, you can send whatever prayer missiles you want. But the thing about, like, he was like, I was there and it was important to be close because you can, like, pick up on stuff. Yeah. And learn about stuff and just and be just in the right place them, at the right like, time. see them, like, see them at yeah. Pret-a-Manger and talk to them. And, like, it's just... <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say, I don't know that there is an analogous liberal slash progressive campaign to do this. I mean, like, I don't know that I'm George say Soros is, is not. buying no. a... No. No. <laughs> Like we we're so poor, we're writing amicus briefs like real plebes. Like what? It would genuinely also not occur. I don't. It would not occur to us to, to buy a building. Like <laughs> I mean, oh my god, Operation yeah. Higher Court, Operation Lower Court. Anyway, yes. let's shift to some other court culture. We'll tick through some kind of like other news in the lower courts and 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 then call okay. it a day. Yeah, let's good? do that. Why don't you talk about what's been happening down in Georgia? Well, there's just a few things that we haven't had a chance to mention that we wanted to just briefly touch on. So one, right before the Thanksgiving holiday, a state court judge in Fulton County um, struck down Georgia's six-week abortion ban. And it was in an opinion that contained a footnote that I kind of feel like we need to read at least a couple of sentences from. So this is Judge Robert McBurney. And he wrote, quote, the state, so this is the state of Georgia. The state argues that Dobbs reflects no change in constitutional law because there was never a federal constitutional right to abortion except there was for 50 years, and we know it because the very same Supreme Court told us so repeatedly, end quote. And at the end of the footnote, McBurney goes on to say, Dobbs's authority flows not from some mystical higher wisdom, but instead basic math. The Dobbs majority is not somehow more correct than the majority that birthed Roe or Casey, despite its frothy language disparaging the views espoused by previous justices. The magic of Dobbs is not its special insight into historical facts or monopoly on constitutional hermeneutics. It is simply numbers. Anyway, there's a bunch more, but this was a great footnote, and I just feel like we need to say, Judge McBurney, we will get you that YOLO court shirt in the mail. We will not like because, because we think you that, deserve one. No, we will not because that would be a gift. Instead, Judge McBurney, you can come stay at my house overnight because <laughs> <laughs> that is fine. Judge McBurney, we we have our you have our blessing if you want come to order stay. and pay with your own salary one of our YOLO. Court shirts, but we feel like you need to be wearing one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we should say the Georgia Supreme Court, not surprisingly, quickly reversed that opinion and put the Georgia ban back into effect with no explanation because they clearly take their cues from one first read. Um, but I, you know, I didn't think the fact that the court so quickly reversed that opinion should mean that the footnote just, you know, immediately evaporates into obscurity because it's it's worth our giving some attention to. Another thing to note is last week the Supreme Court rejected Donald Trump's request for emergency relief that would have spared him from having to provide his much-discussed tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. So there were no recorded dissents, interestingly, not even for Clarence Thomas, who has been especially solicitous of former President Trump's efforts to get the court to intercede to shield him from various investigations. So maybe Justice Thomas is happy to kind of ride under the radar for a little bit, let Sam take the heat and the bad press for a bit. Um, But in any event... Former President Donald Trump, not surprisingly, took to his social media site, I say that with air quotes, Truth Social, to make his displeasure known. So I'm going to say it in my Trumpiest voice. Why would anybody be surprised that the Supreme Court has ruled against me? They always do. The Supreme Court has lost its honor, prestige, and standing. FYI, I nominated a third of them. That's me paraphrasing. It has become nothing more than a political body. Again, I nominated a third of this court. With our country paying the price. Shame on them, this body of individuals of which I've nominated and appointed a third. 
Like I did a lot of paraphrasing on the Truth Social. Sorry. If I if I were on Truth Social, I would have re- quote tweeted it and added all of these things. But anyway, would they let you? I don't even know. They, they would not let me. I'm sure. Would, would they let you on Truth Social? No, I don't even know. No, what, I would have to change kind of my name to Kanye. I would have to na- change my name to Kanye. <laughs> but I feel like you'd fail it. Mm-hmm. I would definitely yeah, fail. Also, another important recent development in the world of law, although not the Supreme Court in particular, which is there's a new special counsel in town. So since former President Trump has declared that he is running for president again, Attorney General Merrick Garland has named a special counsel, Jack Smith, whose name is just so good. And I keep for some reason thinking of as Jack Ryan from that John Krasinski show, um, but it's not. It's Jack, it's Jack Smith. And he's taking over the investigation, both of the Mar-a-Lago document case and the kind of Trump and senior you know, White House leadership part of the January 6th investigation. So um, we'll see what develops there. Watch the space. In other news, the Senate passed the Respect for Marriage Bill. So this is a bill that would protect existing marriages under federal law and as a matter of full faith and credit in the event the court overturns Obergefell versus Hodges and or Loving versus Virginia. So the bill actually goes further than just protecting same-sex marriages to also protect interracial marriages as well. The Senate version is a bit different from the previously passed House bill, and the Senate bill includes pretty broad religious liberty protection, so that would have to be reconciled or the House would need to pass some version that looks more like the Senate bill. But I do think that there is every expectation that some version of this bill will be passed and that it will be signed into law by President Biden. So this is a promising development about codifying the protections for same-sex and interracial marriages um, in the wake of Dobbs. So hmm. well done, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's really important. I do think that Congress obviously didn't seek to legislatively backstop the right to abortion during, say, the first year of the Obama administration when the Democrats controlled, obviously, the White House and then both houses of Congress, including, you know, 60 votes for a bit in the Senate. Um, So I think it's really important that they're doing this here. But I also think it's a really clear indication that a majority of this Congress thinks there's a chance Obergefell is in jeopardy, which I have to say is curious because there are so many men in the commentariat who told us that it was hysterical to worry about Obergefell, that Thomas was just spitballing for himself, et cetera. I mean, I don't want to hear, but I don't like, I mean, we said it, I said it, whatever. Like, I think one of the real differences here is sort of the differences in the political economy of gay marriage versus the political economy of abortion. And, you know, we have lots of people on both sides of the aisle who know and love people who are in same-sex marriages. So I think that contributes to it. I think the sort of public effect of same-sex marriage really counts here in a way that the sort of secretive nature of reproductive care really hobbled abortion for many years as a legislative and public policy question. So again, there are lots of lessons to be learned here. One of them is early and decisive action when you have the opportunity, but I think there are some other lessons that could be learned as well. One thing to flag that I mean, I'm afraid we're going to have to keep an eye on, but I just want to mention (laughs) now, which is that last week, some conservative groups sued the FDA in, you guessed it, Texas. Stairs um, and Steve Vladek. I know. So, you know, obviously a very strategic choice of where to bring the suit. And that the goal of the suit is to challenge the FDA's approval of mifepristone, one of the drugs used in medication abortion. And, you know, definitely calls to mind you know, Steve Lodick and some of Kagan's questions during the United States versus Texas argument about, you know, single district judges in Texas getting to set national policy on every question. Uh, I mean, it hasn't happened here yet, but it well could. All right. Uh, Before we head off into the sunset, I just want to make a huge plug and remind you that it's runoff time in Georgia. So early voting in Georgia started on Monday, November 28th for the December 6th election. 
that's tomorrow. So if you are a Georgia voter, head over to votesaveamerica.com to make your plan to vote. And if you want to help out no matter where you live, you can donate and find remote and in-person volunteer operations to make sure that the Raphael Warnock campaign has the resources that it needs to run successfully against Herschel Walker. So I just cannot underscore this enough. 51 senators means the difference between a true majority or being faced with another two years of roadblocks because certain people can't get with the program. And I'm not going to name names, but I think we all know who I'm talking about. So make sure that every Georgia voter can make their voice heard again at votesaveamerica.com. Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, and me, Kate Shaw. Produced and edited by Melody Rowell. Audio engineering by Kyle Seglin. Music by Eddie Cooper. Production support from Michael Martinez, Sandy Gerard, and Ari Schwartz, with digital support from Amelia Montooth. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.